This is For the Sake of, a podcast by the Society of the Sacred Heart in the United States and Canada. It's about faith, life, and what it all means. I'm your host, Sister Kim King. As we conclude Season 2, this last episode features my conversation with Jesuit Father James Martin. He is editor-at-large for America Magazine, consultor to the Vatican's Secretariat for Communications, and a New York Times best-selling author. He has appeared on numerous media outlets, from NPR to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And today, he joins us on For the Sake of... Jim shares his unique connection to the Society of the Sacred Heart, discusses his body of work, the threads that hold his work together, and the faith that grounds him in his efforts to build bridges. Here's our conversation. Well, a big welcome and a big thank you, James Martin S.J., for being on our podcast. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Thanks. You are an editor-at-large for America Magazine. You're an author of articles and essays and Facebook posts and Twitter posts with a combined following of nearly a million people, an author of best-selling books a sometimes actor, a film consultant, and a consultant to the Vatican Secretariat for Communications. But if I were to ask you to introduce yourself, what is it that you'd say? Oh, that's a great question. First of all, I'm happy to be on the show. I'm happy to be part of the Sacred Heart community. Um, I have to say, I, I was saying this before we got on the air, I was baptized in Philadelphia at the Church of St. Madeline Sophie. So from my earliest days, <laughs> maybe I would say to your community, I would like to introduce myself as someone who was baptized at the Church of St. Madeline Sophie. Um, but, you know, I, I would say I'm a Jesuit priest and author and, uh, you know, I try to be a good Catholic and a good Christian. But I, I, my, my, I would say my central identity would be as a Jesuit priest. Wonderful. And the, the body of work that you have authored— as a Jesuit priest, covers a whole range of topics from life before you entered the Jesuits to um, your life with saints to building bridges to the Jesuit guide for almost everything or very nearly everything. No, almost everything. <laughs> almost everything. And how we pray and how to pray and several other things and some of them have complex histories and relationships with different aspects of the Catholic Church. But I wonder, when you look at the whole of the work that you've done, what you see as a common thread or theme that holds all those different topics together? Yeah, another great question. I've never been asked that before, but there is a theme which is, uh, the very Jesuit theme of uh, helping people encounter God in their daily lives. So whether it's through the saints or through Ignatian spirituality, or it's 
an LGBT person, which is the topic of building a bridge, or the most recent book, Learning to Pray, which is Encountering God Through Prayer. It's, it's really helping people meet God and allowing them to see that God meets them where they are. So very Je- it's a very Jesuit theme. And a, a lot of times, I mean, as you're alluding to, I try to do that with, um, you know, with stories from my own life and saints' lives and stories for, that, I, that I hear about. I think narrative theology is something that I really like. So, but yeah, helping people encounter God. Hmm. How do you see that? That theme of helping people encounter God and the public impact of your work. How has that shaped how you understand what church is and what it could be? Well, I think that whatever I do in public is really in line with that theme, right? That motif of helping people encounter God. So, you know, I go on TV shows and radio shows and podcasts like your own to to sort of further that, right? It's just a furthering of of that um, desire and that mission, I would say, from the Society of Jesus. But in terms of understanding church, I think it's, again, it's um, meeting people where they are, right? So, if people are listening to a podcast, then you go to a podcast. If they're watching network television or, uh, you know, reading the New York Times or looking at some, even some small um, website, right? And then that's that's where you go. And it wasn't beneath Jesus to, you know, speak to people in inviting ways, right? He used mm-hmm. parables to talk to people about nature and everyday life to help them understand the reign of God. And so it shouldn't be beneath us to try to go anywhere and meet people again where they are, the way Jesus did. He, I, I always say, if you don't mind, it's, it's uh, he met people where they were in two ways. He literally traveled to where they were, right? From Nazareth to Capernaum to the Sea of Galilee. He, you know, he went all over the place. He went to Jericho and Canaan, everywhere, right? Jerusalem, of course, uh, Nain, all these you know places that are still around. And then when he got there, he spoke to them in ways that they could understand, right? He spoke in parables. When he calls the first disciples, he says, uh, "Come after me, and I will make you fishers of people." He doesn't say. He doesn't use a carpentry image. He uses an image from their own language. Mm. So I think that's really powerful for me. He really, he really did meet people where they were. He didn't wait till they came to him. He didn't speak in some weird theological language. He could have, I suppose, right? <laughs> He's a smart guy. He spoke to them very simply. So yeah, going to where they are. I think God meets people where they are is a really profound uh, insight. Mm. How does that idea of meeting people where they are and choosing from all the different possible approaches, how does that factor into how you decide what you write about? These are, you really are asking very good questions. I really don't get good questions like that. <laughs> I, I tend to let the Holy Spirit guide me in what I write, meaning not that there's a little bird on my shoulder telling me like word for word, that'd be nice, and, but that what I feel drawn to uh, I trust is the spirit drawing me to write about. So, for example, this most recent book, Learning to Pray, I had been drawn to the idea for the past couple of years of writing a book about prayer because I thought that there needed to be a book out there that was a tad more accessible than some of the ones that I've read before. Nothing against the ones I've read, but just you know, even more accessible. So, I trust the spirit leading me, and then when I'm writing it, um, you know, I, I try to say, well, all right, is this really is this going to meet people where they are? I often think of myself at age 27, which is when I entered the Jesuits mm. way back when. And, you know, I didn't know anything about prayer or 
spirituality. And so I think of myself and someone who doesn't really know a whole lot and know the lingo and, and to never take things for granted. So one, one example in this Learning to Pray book, a significant part of the book is what happens when you pray? Like what actually happens when you close your eyes? People, I don't And when I was a novice, people would say, oh, you know, I, God was really close to me or, you know, I felt God inviting me to do this. And I thought, what are you talking about? Like, what, what is that? What are you talking about? Do you hear voices or you see visions or what, what does that even mean? So that's the kind of thing I, I think is important to, to make accessible. And that's part of meeting people where they are because not everybody, you know, has that background. So I try to do that as well. I try to make it really accessible and really like blunt, like this is what this means, right? Not use this, these kind of vague, you know, well, when you, when you are in centering prayer and you feel the presence of the Lord, what do you, what does that mean? Well, I try to say what that means in the book. So I've tried to be clear too. Hmm. Your approach sounds so refreshingly organic, grounded. Thanks. I wonder if it sometimes surprises you that your body of work that sounds so very grounded and is from what I have read of your work, but that it inspires such strong opinions in people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's only one that really inspires <laughs> strong opinions. So I wrote a book called Building a Bridge, which was mm -hmm. about the Catholic Church's relationship to the LGBT community. And really up before that, I mean, my books were about the saints, Ignatian spirituality, 9-11, working with refugees, uh, gosh, you know, vocation story, Jesus. Mm. And, you know, for the most part, they were very accepted. And it wasn't until that one book, uh, which really didn't challenge any church teaching mm. that, uh, you know, made everyone go crazy. Uh, yeah, it does surprise me, but I guess it shouldn't because there's so much homophobia out there that even if, and, and you look at, look at someone like Pope Francis, my boss, um, our boss, uh, you know, I mean, he would, he talks about mercy and poverty and people don't even like that. So I, it, it did surprise the, the vitriol. The, I guess what surprised me was the kind of personal attacks. Mm. Like, okay, you can be, I, I don't, I don't know why you would disagree with the book that talks about treating people with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Okay, fine. If you have challenges with that, but I mean, you know, attacking me personally, and that was surprising, you know, even, even from supposedly, you know, Catholic uh, media organizations and, hmm. you know, having talks canceled. And so it was a little surprising, um, but I guess it shouldn't have been, right? I mean, Dorothy Day used to like to say, well, you know, they did, I mean, to paraphrase, they did this to Jesus. So why, why, would, why wouldn't we expect they do it to us? Sure. When you find yourself in that sort of vortex of swirling opinions, mm -hmm all around you, from the public, from the church, from religious community. What is it that uh, sustains and steadies you inside that? Uh, yeah, so there's a kind of a long answer, if you don't mind. Please. I, I was on a retreat about, ooh, six or seven years ago. And in the, it, during, that, during that time in my life, there was a person in my Jesuit community, I hate to say, who was let's just say he hated me. <laughs> was, and, you know, I mean, in religious life, that happens sometimes, right? It just happens. It happens in life outside of religious community and families and workplaces and neighborhoods. But it was very difficult for me. And um, 
I was on this retreat and my retreat director suggested I pray over the rejection at Nazareth, mm. right? So where Jesus stands up in the temple and he's rejected and they drive him out to the brow of a hill. Now I thought, well, okay, um, you know, maybe this is about me being rejected. And I remember praying over it and the normal way of looking at that reading, as you know, I'm sure you've heard a million homilies like this. Oh, look at the people of Nazareth who didn't recognize Jesus right in front of them because he was too familiar, right? And how often do we, you know, overlook God because God is too familiar? I mean, it's a very common, and it's fine. It's a fine interpretation from the point of view of the crowd. But in this retreat, I started to look at it from the point of view of Jesus. Mm. And I thought Jesus was in this small town. So I knew from doing research on my book on Jesus, Nazareth is 200 or 400 people. He must've known them. Like he probably knew everyone in the synagogue after living there for 30 years. So when he stood up, he knew probably how they were going to respond. And I remember saying in my prayer to Jesus, how could you do this? Like, how are you able to do this? And in prayer, I heard him say, I mean, not orally, but the words came to me, uh, Jesus saying, must everyone like you? Hmm. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, And it seemed like an invitation to let go of the need to be loved, liked, or approved of. And so that was really helpful in that relationship with that person um, who eventually left the community, but never stopped disliking me. And then when I got attacked um, for this book, that came back to me. Hmm. Must everyone like you? And the answer is no. So it was very freeing. So eventually, I mean, I, didn't, I would prefer people not calling me heretic and apostate and all these homophobic names online and, sure. you know, and shows and stuff. But it actually didn't bother me because I thought I had had that insight years ago, you know, in prayer. And uh, okay, fine. They don't like me. They don't like me. And now I I really, it actually, it's kind of funny because if you had asked me 10, 15 years ago, I would have been so upset. If you had said to me, bishops and cardinals are going to attack you online, in print, in interviews, call you a heretic, call you a bad Catholic, I would have been so upset. And tell me how I can make this right. And all I need to do is talk to these people. I have to convince them. But now I say, who cares? You know, not, not that I want it or not that I want them to misunderstand things, which they do, or not read my books, which they admit not doing. Mm. Uh, one bishop condemned me in his diocesan newspaper, a, 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 an American bishop said, this is a terrible book. And then halfway through the article, he said, I haven't read it yet. You know, so while I would rather that not happen, mm-hmm. it doesn't bother me. So that that was the insight. Because look, if, if Jesus had waited for people to approve of what he was doing, he would have never left Nazareth. Hmm. And neither of us would be here. <laughs> <laughs> True enough. <laughs> I mean, you know, Madeline Sophie, hmm. you know, there would have been no sacred heart of anything to, uh, no, <laughs> you know, I mean, he would have had a sacred heart, but we wouldn't have known about it as much. He would have been, you know, sawing wood in Nazareth. <laughs> so a lot of it is his freedom from the need to be liked. Hmm. Do you find the support in your religious community as well? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, hundred um, percent. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's one or two about this LGBT ministry that have expressed, like, you know, we're a little concerned. But no, I mean, I have the support of um, our superior general, my provincial, my my brother Jesuits. Yeah, it's really been terrific. And one of the reasons is, I mean, in addition to them, you know, supporting a brother Jesuit and supporting the ministry itself is, I've been very careful to do this within the society of Jesus and within the church and getting all the permissions I need at every step. Mm. 
I mean, really, you know, may I write this book? May I do this talk? May I, here is the talk. Mm. May I do this? You know, so, I mean, as you know, you know, I take a vow of obedience and that's part of it. And I think that, that, that support really helps me. And then, you know, I met with the Pope for a half an hour and he, that was his sign of support. Mm. So yeah, I feel very supported. Mm. Thank God. Yes. <laughs> Thank God indeed. Mm-hmm. When you think about the work that needs done in the church and in the world, how far ahead do you think? <laughs> you have the best questions. Um, well, you know, it's funny. Um, I would say that I think both a day ahead mm. and a hundred years ahead. Okay. I love the expression, getting too far over your skis. Do you know mm. that expression? Yes. Such a great expression. I don't really ski, but it's a great expression. Yes. You know, you don't, you don't, I think there are a lot of people that, uh, that, that work for, um, you know, change and growth in the church that get really frustrated. It's not happening fast enough. One of the things that bothers me sometimes about, it's a true confession, is that if something happens that's positive in the Vatican, um, and I think I would say this is this is the case for lots of groups in the church that want change, okay? Women, lay people, LGBT people, I mean, you know, the different parts of our church, mm -hmm. the different members of the body of Christ. This kind of drives me crazy. If something happens that's a positive change, I think half the people say, not enough. Mm. Or too little, too late. Oh, man, that just drives me. There's something about it that just drives me crazy. So, for example, um, a very positive step. I thought this was an extremely positive step. The Pope um, instituted uh, formally ministries for women as lectors and acolytes. Yes. And now, you know, whatever you think about women's leadership roles in the church, I thought this was a really positive step. And people said, no, not enough. So that's, for me, where you have to think like a day ahead, like a day at a time, because otherwise you just get, you know, you look at like the civil rights movement. Mm. Okay. I mean, you know, it's one step at a time. One of my heroes is obviously Martin Luther King, but John Lewis, right? And, mm. you know, one, one step at a time. And imagine if he'd said, you know, there was a sense of always wanting more fulfillment, but if his whole attitude was, you know, this stinks every time something happened. So that that's one day ahead. By the same token, I think you need to think a hundred years ahead to think historically. Like what needs to be done historically? I think the two groups that are the most, let's say, in need of further inclusion will be women and LGBT people. Mm -hmm. And of course, then there's women who are LGBT people. And so I think, you know, a hundred years from now we have to say, what do we want to have done when the history books are written? Mm -hmm to advance women's place in the church and the place of the LGBT person in the church. Hmm. So yeah, so one day versus a hundred years. But it's funny, I don't know why it bothers me so much, the not enough. <laughs> it's just because then you you kind of I think you make it harder for the church to change. Hmm. Right? And you you're not you're focusing on the glass half empty. Now I I look, I I mean I'm a white male, so maybe I can say that and 
maybe it comes across as hollow to to women, but I do think that focusing on the positive parts of change are really helpful, just for your own psyche, mm. right? What does the church need in order to change? <laughs> oh my gosh, how long do you have? <laughs> well, it means you know it's funny. Um, the day that we are recording, um, without you know giving it away, the the reading is. Jesus's image of the new wineskins, mm. right? And um, he has these two great images. One is the new cloth sewed on old clothes. Okay, now by the way, I just realized this that these these would be things that poor and ordinary people would be doing because a rich person would just buy new clothes, right? Mm. So the the new piece of cloth or the patch that's sewed onto old clothes would would tear. Okay, if it's you know, if it's not pre-shrunk or pre-washed, I guess they did pre-washing back then. <laughs> uh, and the same for new wineskins. So I just realized I literally was just reading this today. The fermented wine would expand, mm-hmm. which means that the old wineskins that had the fermented wine would already be expanded enough. So when you filled it with new wine, it would expand more and explode, right? Thus destroying everything. There's an image of it just. Everything's ruined. The wine, the skin, same with the patch. The patch is ruined. The clothes are ruined. Everything tears. So there's this kind of incompatibility with the old and the new, right? And it's this desire for transformation. So I think the church needs to, you know, in a sense, be a new wineskin for for the new wine of of spirit, the spirituality of women, the spirituality of LGBT people. But it's 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 frightening for people because everybody likes the old wine. Oh, the old wineskins are okay. The you know, this is this this old piece of clothing is okay. So, Jesus, I think, is always trying to create something new. But, but to answer your question, I think we need less fear because it's all fear—fear fear of women, which is just like just so deep in the church, in so many ways. Fear of LGBT people, fear of the poor, fear of change. Hmm. One of the things that that really just is astonishing to me is the people who say the church never changes, never, ever, ever. Hmm. I was like, you know, you look at something like the death penalty, right? I mean, there's something in our lifetime that has changed. I mean, it had been permissible, then it was sort of frowned on. Now it's inadmissible, says Pope Francis, and now the catechism says that. Same with something like um, these roles for women, right? Women formally instituted in ministries around the altar. Okay, that's that's a big deal, but that's frightening to people. And I don't, I don't, I've never really at heart understood why, you know, it's just, it's, you know, the, the church grows and develops and thank God, you know, look at Vatican II. Mm. So what do we need? We need, um, we need courage, we need courage and less fear. Do you have um, thoughts or ideas about how we can foster that courage in each other? Oh, Wow. A lot of it has to do with trusting in the Holy Spirit. That's mm. that's the main thing. That the Holy Spirit is actually with us and is speaking through the poor, through women, through LGBT people, through migrants and refugees, through uh, parts of the church that haven't been listened to, through, through geographic areas that haven't been listened to. Mm. I've had some limited experience in Rome now, like, yeah, I mean, not a lot, but, you know, going over for a meeting or two. Mm. And I've met these cardinals from far-flung places, at least far-flung in terms of where we are, telling me stories like, well, when, when the nuncio, the, the Vatican ambassador to my country, called me you know, to tell them he was going to be named a cardinal, I thought I was in trouble. 
<laughs> so many stories like that. So we need to be able to trust that the Spirit's at work in, in places where we might not look initially for the Spirit. And we also need to be open to hearing one another's stories. I'm a big fan of mm. listening to stories. What's your experience? So rather than the church imposing ideas on, for example, LGBT people, to, well, how about listening to them? Trusting that the spirit's there. Sounds like a call to be and do as Jesus was and did. Yeah, he did. I mean, you think of someone like the woman at the well, right? Mm -hmm. One of my favorite stories in John. And oh man, that dialogue he has with her, I think is the longest dialogue in the gospels, back and forth and back and forth. And he listens to her and she's not even, they're not even supposed to be talking. Hmm. He's a man. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's in, as you know, I mean, she's out there in the heat of the day because she's probably embarrassed about her marital status and not with the other women, you know, mm -hmm. who probably came out in the morning when it was cooler. And he listens. He, that's very much along the lines of Pope Francis's culture of encounter, mm -hmm. like really literally face-to-face -face listening, not just reading about or tweeting about. <laughs> and I think too about the, the woman caught in adultery, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of my favorites. And the... Mm -hmm. The need to self-reflect, hmm. I think, which is the aspect of that that has always struck me. When Jesus tells the people who wanted to stone her, huh, okay, so whichever one of you is able to do this in good conscience, go ahead. And they don't. Hmm. And I have always just thought about that as a, a call to look at my own behaviors and my own experiences. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, you know, I never thought about it that way. That's a great insight because I, thanks, thanks for sharing that with me. Mm -hmm. I used to think of it more as like, he's kind of challenging them, right? He's rebutting them. He's, mm -hmm. he's throwing it back in their face, but you're right. It's, it's, it's his invitation for them to reflect. That's, that's a really great way of looking at it. It's a lot less violent too, right? It's not like I'm now going to give you this irrefutable, challenge, but no, it's, I, I'm inviting you to look at yourself. That's a great way of looking at it. Thank you for sharing that. It's great. I'm going to steal that and quote you. Okay. <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> you have my permission. Thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. Um, the world is in a bit of a state, with, to put it, I'll say. Uh, yeah, to put it mildly at this moment. But when you sort of when you close your eyes, you were going back to the beginning when you were talking about closing your eyes in prayer. And what is it that holds your spiritual fascination? Like in the midst of all that is real, what is it that you that you're thinking about? Like the hope or the spark or the the oh, I'm going toward that. Yeah, I, I think it's basically looking for the Spirit each day. Um, you know, we Jesuits, as you know, we do that prayer, the examination of conscience, where you look for signs of God each day. And so I try to look at, I try to look at it day by day. Um, but I, I do see a lot of signs of change and growth. Um, I think for me, you know, one of the, one of the bright lights truly is Pope Francis and what he's doing mm. and how you can, wake up one morning and for example that document on women that was a that was just a surprise so well, i didn't know that was coming no one knew it was coming I just woke up and oh 
okay, that's that's good. That's good news. So there's a sense of hope. I I do think that you know in the, we are talking uh, in the midst of the pandemic, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm happy about the vaccine and hope that gets every in everybody's arm. I also I do hope, as Francis said, to quote him again, um, that we don't go back to the same ways of doing things. Let's get back to our example of the, you know, patching the, you know, the new piece of cloth on the old garment. But probably better metaphor, it's putting the new wine in the old wineskins, right? Mm. I do hope we can go back to something different. I'm hopeful, but I can also be pessimistic because I lived through 9/11 here in New York City, um, where I am still. And you'll remember, um, many, may, some of our listeners may not remember, but at that time, everyone said, nothing will ever be the same. Hmm. Nothing will, we will never be the same. We've had this catastrophic loss of life, 3,000 people, I believe. Mm-hmm. We've, had, we've had 100 times that, you know, in the, in the COVID uh, pandemic. And, you know, pretty soon after 9-11, within a year, things had gotten back to the same. I mean, there were people sniping and it's a lot of disunity and discord over war. New York certainly felt more or less the same, except for downtown. I mean, obviously, except for people who had lost friends and families. Hmm. But I, I, I really hope that the pandemic helps us to see income disparities, helps us to focus more on the need for health care, really good health care for everybody as a human right. And also to just be more grateful to people who are putting themselves on the line. I, you know, I continually go back to Pope Francis's line in, I guess, boy, almost a year ago in March, yeah, a year ago, where he talked about the saints next door, mm. right? So people like grocery clerks and taxi cab drivers and transit workers. And one of the things that really struck me, it was a, a friend of mine who mentioned this to me, that at the beginning, you'll recall, people talked about essential workers. Now we we hooray for the essential workers and People were thanking the grocery store clerks, and which I thought was lovely. But after a few months, you realize, wait a minute, the essential workers are basically the ones who are poorer, mm. who can't work from home, who are not allowed to work from home, who have to go in, and who are on the front lines, not because like doctors and nurses, are they've chosen that profession, but because they're poor overall and they have to. And one thing that just blew my mind was someone said, yeah, you know what essential means? It means sacrificial. That's what that means. Oh. And so I, I wonder if we can start to recognize the difficulties of, of people's lives like this, who live like this. Mm. I hope so. Um, at the very least, I think that it has made people much more conscious of mortality. You, you would have to really be you know, putting your head in the sand if you didn't think about that once or twice. Hmm. Well, it is a fine line between uh, pessimism and realism, isn't it? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to walk with hope uh, in the midst of what is real and hold uh, both. I was writing something earlier uh, and referring back to a line from Leonard Cohen in his song Anthem. And it seems like the, the pressure of holding what is real and true and human nature. And you put all of that together and that's when the cracks happen, Mm. the cracks that are in everything. And my hope is that 
we can navigate these cracks that are becoming mm-hmm. visible in all of this and navigate them through the light of God and the gospels and the way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But name them, name the cracks. Don't ignore them, mm-hmm. but name them. Mm-hmm. It's a good image. I love that image too. You can steal that one too if you want. I will, yeah, I'll steal from you and Leonard Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> um, as we wrap up our time together, uh, what is bringing you joy? Well, uh, I would say on the on the natural level, as they say, you don't want to divide them, but um, I'm really happy this book is coming out, Learning to Pray. Um, mm. I've worked on it for about 10 years and I'm, you know, I don't want to say, oh, it's the, man, it's this great book, but I'm happy that I'm able to offer people my own experience and uh, what I've learned from um, other people, from men and women and religious and lay and all sorts of people about prayer, because I think it's, it's an important time for people to think about that. And so many people are asking questions and wonder where God is and how could God be with me? So I'm, I'm really, I'm happy about that. I really am happy about that book coming out. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm working on a book on Lazarus, uh, uh, which is real. I love writing about, I love Lazarus. I love that story. And I, you know, the other thing, look, I'm, I'm uh, on a purely natural level. I'm really happy about the vaccine. I mean, thank God. Yes. Let's hope that, you know, this, this, this variant, you know, responds to this vaccine, which apparently it does. But uh, when I saw that, uh, you know, I have to say there was a very beautiful picture. I think it, it went all over the place of the first person to get the vaccine in the United States mm-hmm. who was, uh, I believe, um, certainly a, a, a woman of color. I'm not sure. I think she might've been Haitian. I'm not sure. Uh, but it was in a hospital in Queens, I believe, mm-hmm. where the, one of the sort of epicenters of this. I just thought that was the most beautiful picture. You know, it's like, finally, you know, you think about all the effort that went into that and the doctors and the nurses and the, and then her herself, you know, and ha- having been on the front line, I just, that really made me happy. That, that picture, I thought, oh, I think so many people felt a relief. And with each passing day, um, even though it's been, <laughs> I think, completely mishandled in terms of the distribution, even with that, more and more people are getting vaccinated every day. Mm-hmm. And so by the time this story appears, you know, even more people will get vaccinated. My mom is 89 and she should be vaccinated soon. And mm. uh, so that, that really, I'm really happy about that. I mean, that's everybody's most fervent prayer. Mm. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for sharing your joy and your insight and your, your thoughts with the listeners of For the Sake of and for your time. It's been a gift. Well, my pleasure. And I would say thank you for all the great work that uh, truly uh, your community does amazing work. I I mean, I I think everybody knows it who's listening to this (laughs) podcast, but um, you know, your sisters and the larger community, uh, you know, there's a certain, um, well, charism of intelligent women and their colleagues spreading the gospel which I just think is so beautiful. And um, I'll also say, you know, uh, if it weren't for Madeline Sophie, I wouldn't have had a church to get baptized in. So thanks for that too. You're welcome. She has the name of the podcast is For the Sake of, because Madeline Sophie Barra said, for the sake of one child, I would have founded the society. Mm. And so who knows, maybe you're that one child. 
<laughs> That's great. Thank you. You're very welcome. Nice to, nice to be with you. Good to be with you too, Jim. A special thanks to Father Jim Martin. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to For the Sake of when podcast options are seemingly endless these days. Until next time, our whole podcast production team wishes you well. We do hope you join us for Season 3 where we continue exploring faith, life, and what it all means. I'm your host, Kim King, and this has been For the Sake Of. You can subscribe to For the Sake Of on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For the Sake Of is a production of the Society of the Sacred Heart, United States, Canada Province, supported by the Formation to Mission Committee. It's produced and directed by Aaron Everson. Music written and produced by Eliza Lynn. Colleen Doley is our production consultant. This show was mixed and edited by Noah Levinson. For more conversations on faith, life, and what it all means, visit rscj.org slash for the sake of.